0: pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. We thank you, O God, for the anointing of the Lord that has been upon this campus and this house. O God, Lord, for generations and even this morning as people were gathering and coming, Thank you, O God, for the anointing of the Lord upon your word that you promised it would not return void. And we thank you for it bearing fruit in our lives and in our church. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name and everyone said. Turn with me, if you would, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. This is our memorization passage. If you have a Bible or a smart device that you can go and look it up or right up here behind us. Uh, Follow along with me as I read. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. The context of this passage is that Solomon has just had a prayer of dedication, and offered many sacrifices for the dedication of the temple. It was a powerful, powerful display of the outpouring of God's presence. And after all of this had taken place, God answered Solomon and said this to him. Now we know and understand then from that, this this primarily is spoken to the people of Israel and to the people of the land of that time. But let us never forget that God gives us principles within God's Word. And I believe that just as God spoke this to the people of Israel, I believe too, if a people and if a nation will call upon Him following this prescription, God will heal from heaven. Last week we started this series, parables, and we're going to put it on pause just for a week here, and as we approach Independence Day, I want you to consider with me how dependent we are upon God as a nation. And I want you to consider also with me how desperately we need to call on God today. If the news does anything to us, It ought to call us to call on God as we see how divided we are in this land and how desperately we need God to help us. You know, the founding fathers and the framers of this nation understood this. I want to point out to you that there was a time of great division in our land just as we approach trying to put together, as the nation tried to put together the Constitution of the United States. You see, three years after the signing of the Declaration of, the in- of Independence, while attempting to bring together the nation and the states under the umbrella of a constitution, there was the, the, um, the Congress that was happening, the con- uh, Continental Congress was happening in the nation, and they were trying to bring all of the delits to together, and they had reached an impasse so many of the delegates from the states were threatening to leave the meeting. And after a time of remaining silent, there was an individual who had been sitting and listening, and his name is Benjamin Franklin. He hadn't said anything through all this discussion and debate, and he rose, and the following are some of the words that he spoke today. Listen closely to what Benjamin Franklin had to say. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire cannot raise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Further, Benjamin Franklin said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided in our little partial local interests, and our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing governments, be human wisdom, and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. Benjamin Franklin further stated, therefore, I beg leave to move, that henceforth, We implore the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed business and that one or more of clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. That was a shifting point and a watershed in the moment of the Congre- uh, Con- uh, Continental Congress. It changed so much that they began to gel and come together and gave birth to the greatest, I believe, the greatest constitution that the world has ever seen written. But it was predicated when God's people began to ask for his assistance. Let's consider our text this morning then. If this nation, or any other nation then, is to survive and thrive, it will be because the Lord builds the house and His hand of favor rests upon it. We, like Israel of Solomon's day, need to follow God's direction and call on Him. So then, let us first notice that for a nation and a people be turned around, first of all, it needs to be a people who are called by His name. 2nd Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people are called by my name. Now notice that the persons in the qualifications here are not political parties. It's not the media. It's not the entertainment industries. And we are mistaken if we think that the answer for our critical problems and the insurmountable issues of people and nations have their resolve apart from God's intervention. Just as they realized it in the First Continental Congress, so my people which are called by my name, God says, need to call on me. You see, the answer for America is neither Democratic or Republican. Hello. Amen. Amen. It is neither Fox News, NBC, CBS, or ABC News. It will only be found in the good news of the book God's word and God's intervention. Amen. I am reminded that Israel, long after God had spoken this, the 2nd Chronicles, forgot. What God had said to the nation, they're again at a place where they're about to be overcome and overrun. The Assyrians are marching against the nation. And Israel, instead of calling on God, thinks that they need to make alliances. And, and Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, in the great strength of their horses, but, catch this conjunction, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. And so we need to understand that, oh, we need to have alliances, and we, and we need to have uh, politicians who have great understanding and great insight. But we need to, first and foremost, even in the place of those who have great understanding, call upon the name of the Lord. When we do, we are saying that we need something by, beyond and beyond and greater than ourselves, how much better to have the heart of the psalmist in Psalms 20 verse 7 that says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We can have the greatest army, the greatest air force, the greatest navy, but it is absurd to think that that alone, that nations will survive without the favor and the direction and the blessing of God. He raises up kings and kingdoms and brings them down. It is absurd then for us to think that people who are not transformed by the power of the Spirit and by God's grace will call upon Him and therefore God says, if my people, that's you and me, that is the church, we the people, in this instance, is the church, those called by His name. And so it's high time for God's people, the church, to recognize their high and holy calling in regard to their nation. We read that God says to the New Testament church in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen people. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a chosen person. It goes ahead to say that you are a royal priesthood. Tell him, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So let's think for a moment, what did priests do? Well, one of the things that priests do is they offered sacrifices, and there was thanksgiving offerings and sin offerings, and, and and they offered sacrifices. And and this morning during worship, many of you, the, the passion for worship was here, and I just love it. I love I love seeing us being excited about who God is and what He's done in our lives, and it ought to be that way. I mean, the Cowboys game or the Rangers game or the World Series or the or the Super Bowl ought to have nothing on the people of God when it comes to worshiping God. So we offer sacrifices of praise, and that was happening in this house. But another thing that the priests did is they offered intercession for the people. So it is clear that we the people, it is us who God is waiting to hear from in regard to our nation. Oh, you know what? I wonder if the reason why we aren't in such confusion and turmoil today and there's such partisanism in the the United States of America is because God's people have quit calling upon him and asking him for intervention in their government. We want to blame Congress and we want to blame the president and we want to blame the media, but God says, if my people... So we are called to be intercessors, called on God. We cannot wait for the political establishment or education or entertainment entertainment industry to lead in this effort of prayer. We, who are believers in Jesus Christ, must take the responsibility to say, Oh God, we call on you for our land. Secondly, I want you to see that our text then says for a nation to be turned around. It says, if my people, uh, if they humble themselves, those who are called by my name will humble them." Say say that word with me, humble, humble. I'm glad to see you aren't like Fonzie in happy days. He couldn't say that word, could he? The Hebrew there is spelled K-A-N-A. And you know what it means? It means to bow a knee what it literally means when it says to humble. There's a great preacher, and uh, it's from time past, so many of us may not recognize his name, but if you study preachers and preaching, you would know the name Dr. Harry Ironside. He served and ministered in the great city of Chicago many decades ago. And one day, he became very aware of the fact that he seemed to have a lack of humility. God was using him in a great way, and he would built a great church in Chicago, and people were listening to what Dr. Ironside had to say. And so he began to discuss with a friend this fact that he was convicted about his lack of humility. And so the friend recommended to him, he said, Dr. Ironside, pray about and consider. Perhaps what you need to do is wear a sandwich board. Anybody know what a sandwich board is? Yeah, I figured some of you didn't. It's kind of a big, it could maybe be two placards that were, you know, about this long. On both sides had straps that you put your head in and you walked around. And it was like a walking street sign almost as you had that. And he said, Dr. Einstein, why don't you uh, take and have printed on that board verses for people to hear and walk through the streets of Chicago shouting the scriptures on the board for all to hear. Dr. Ironside agreed to this venture, and when he returned to his study and removed the board, he said, wow, what an experience. I'll bet there aren't too many men in this city who would do that. Yeah. You know, walking with the placard didn't help him a bit, did it? You know, the Bible tells us that... that, um, Humbling ourselves isn't just a matter of bending the knee. There's a matter of our heart as well as our physical action. While Ironside had taken the physical action, it's kind of clear by his response that he hadn't humbled himself. There's a quote by Benjamin Wichcoat that I love. It says, none are as empty as those who are as full of themselves. So what is humility? And what makes Humble people different. Humility is the recognition that it's not me that can get anything done or all that needs to get done, that I am dependent upon others. It is the absence of self in thinking that it's, it's all about what I do and what I say and what I can accomplish. When someone used to appear before a king, they would bow their knee, but the reason why they bowed their knee, it was an outward sign that they were in the presence of someone greater who held power over them that that could take and give them favor or take their life. I'm reminded of an instance when I visited Israel in my early 20s in the 1970s. One of the places that I visited was the... um, site in Bethlehem where the cave is thought that Mary gave birth to Jesus. And uh, as many places in the Holy Land, a church has been built over the actual site. You know, the they just have built monuments everywhere they possibly could. But what's fascinating is when you approach this church in Bethlehem, uh, instead of having these huge arching columns and this massive, impressive, Im- uh, superstructure that's there. You approach this church and you see all of this wood and boards and everything that is just brown and ugly and all of that. And there's a small door that's probably only about that wide and about this high to literally get into the church at Bethlehem. You have to do this to get in. The reason why that was built is in the Middle Ages... During medieval times, apparently uh, many riders were actually riding on their horses into the church. And so church leaders thought, how can we solve this problem? And they built this imposing wood wall with just this small door so that you had to bend down to get in. The door is called Humility Gate. And it reminds us that the way into God's presence... The way to seek God is only through humility. We've seen the truth of this when God's people humble themselves. And, and we need to humble ourselves. Before God and before men, and, and, and when our heart is touched with this thing of humility, when we bow before God, it will mean that we bow before men as well. Do you remember the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 through 14? It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He told it because Luke records and says, he told this because some had taken confidence in their own righteousness. Righteousness. Can I ask you today, have you taken confidence in your own righteousness? Have you kind of come to a place you've served the Lord long enough that you've read through the Word umpteen times and you fasted and you've prayed and you never miss church? You're you're at church and and you give, you know, into the offering and that? And is your confidence in that? It's kind of like the Pharisee. As he stood there and he saw the the publican, the tax collector, I I can imagine he might have even pointed and he said, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I give, and he went on with his own resume and accolades. And yet the publican said, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God said, That man went home justified. Justified. Because he humbled himself before God. I tell you that we must weekly and even daily have a review of our hearts and our behaviors, coupled with a confession to God. And this is essential if we're going to humble ourselves before God. Thirdly, what this text tells us for a nation or a people to be turned around, he says, My people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And pray and seek my face. My people must seek my face. Have you ever considered the difference between seeking the face of God and the hand of God? There's a real difference, my friend. And you could do a study on this in the word of God and see what God says about his hand and the implication about seeking the face of God. You know, when we seek the hand of God, it's whatever the power of God can do, what God can do for me. When I seek the face of God, it's all about relationship. You know, it, it's about, I'm, I'm serving you and seeking you, God, just because of who you are, not for what you can do for me. Clearly in our text, God is speaking to them, seeking his face. Reminds me of the, of the Apostle Peter's revelation of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And God begins to pour out his spirit in Jerusalem, and people are getting saved. And there was a man called Simon the Great, and the reason why he was called Simon the Great is because he practiced magic. Uh, I, I believe black magic. That, that he was very much a part of... Um, of, of the demonic forces that were present. And yet the Bible says that he came to believe God and he was following the apostles around. Well, he began to see that the apostles could lay hands upon people, and when they laid their hands upon people, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. He saw the Spirit of God poured out, and he saw how people were following them, and I believe he became very envious and jealous of that uh, of that power. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. I'm reading from the NLT. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking that God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you of the evil thoughts for I can see that you are full of bitterness, bitter jealousy, and captive to sin. He followed God because of what He thought he can get out of God instead of following God for who God was and is. So the call for us is to seek him in relationship. And not only that, we are to seek his face in intercession. Remember, just a few minutes ago, we were reminded that we have a calling as the priesthood of believers to be intercessors. We are a royal priesthood, and we found that a part of this, this being an intercessor is not only offering up praise to God, but interceding in prayer for the needs of a nation. How many of you have ever heard of the Cain Ridge Revival? Let's see if we have people here at first service and nobody raised their hand. Cain Ridge Revival, Elka, the only one. The Cane Ridge Revival, the year was 1801. The United States was barely 25 years old. And Kentucky had just joined the union less than 10 years earlier. The new nation was quickly growing as more and more people continued to venture west. This Cane Ridge Revival is actually what many believe was the second great awakening in the United States. First great awakening was Jonathan Edwards and his preaching of the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The days of Jonathan Edwards and the great awakening had already begun to fade in the U.S. consciousness as the U.S. expanded west. Once again, the moral foundations of America were slowly eroding away. Alcoholism and and violence were again just increasing in the United States. Churches were fewer and far in this vast land. As people moved farther and farther away from their churches, they began to forsake the Lord. This was the wild frontier where the only rule of law was a gun or a rope. It was a time when wickedness abounded and very few people professed real faith. It was a spiritual dark time for America. I don't know where it originated and I don't know if we can find it or not, but there was a rise that began to happen among church people that were there in that area that we need to call on God. And there was no social media. There wasn't any Facebook. There wasn't any cell phone. The mail system was just wildly, uh, just almost non-existent to be able to get something quickly. There certainly wasn't any two-day letters. But somehow God had put in the hearts of people, and the estimates are that over 20,000 people showed up on Cane Ridge in Kentucky, and they stayed for days and even a week. And what happened throughout this field, this vast area, as 20,000 people were there, there were individual groups of people where some preacher would step up or some layman would step up and proclaim the word of God on a stump. And they would call on the people of God to return to God and call on God for America. And this happened for days. In this dark times, the light of the gospel began to shine bright. The fire that fell on Cane Ridge sparked a movement. And revival spread across the American frontier like wildfire, driven by a swift wind through dry brush. In the years following, there was an explosion. Exponential explosion of church planting. Similar camp meetings were organized in several states, though none ever matched the attendance of the original meeting at Cambridge. The effect was undeniable. America was once again awakened to the need of God in the fabric of society. Because my people who were called by my name humbled themselves and prayed. I'm certain there are many today, perhaps even some of us here, who wonder if it's possible for God to move again in such a powerful way. They've concluded that perhaps America's gone too far to experience another great awakening. Cain Ridge shows us otherwise. This revival that took place too a well over 215 years ago, should offer us hope today that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. Fourthly and finally, I want you to see in this text this morning, that it reveals for a nation or a people to be turned around, my people must turn from their wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, make no mistake, God says it's his people that are to turn from their wicked ways. So often I can think, man, the world needs to repent. I need to repent. It's me when God's people settle into a place where they are no longer concerned about sin in their own lives individually, we are at a place where we really need to call on God. Uh, We need to, again, recognize the sinfulness of sin. It is not our neighbor, but us. No excuses. You know, what we've come to do is is, is we've come to be... deceived into thinking that, you know, well, you know, this is okay, or it's not as bad as what this person's doing, or, or you know, uh, is really it really a sin? And we begin to question, even like Satan did in the Garden of Eden, and question the Word of God, what God says. But God says, if my people will turn from their wicked ways... We need to once again call a spade a spade and quit calling sin by some other name and agree with God and say, God, it's me. I need to turn from this. I call on you today. We need to also realize the entanglement of sin, how it's so easily. There's a Hebrews passage that says, the sin that so easily besets or entangles, as one passage says. I'm reminded, I know I've shared with you before, there's a plant in southeastern United States, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, probably even into South Carolina. This plant is called kudzu. Now, kudzu has become known as the scourge of the South. They had imported it thinking it would really help them with a particular problem that they had. They were deceived into thinking that they could bring it in and it it would be okay in that environment and they brought it in and the thing about kudzu is is it's it's a vine that can seem just so inconsequential at first and perhaps there's some sin in our lives we thought well this isn't so bad And this vine, it begins to grow and it's supported by trees and it will begin to grow up around the tree and the tree will flourish and the vine will slowly and methodically flourish until in the point that it will cover the whole tree and it will encapsulize the tree and cover its canopy and block out photosynthesis and the tree dies while the kudzu. Is calling on us to repent, to turn from our wicked ways, to call on him if we're going to see the land healed. Would you stand together with me, please, this morning? I told you last week, if you were with us, you know this, that I was going to have a time in the service, and as I put this together, I just really felt like it was at the end of the service. I want to come and do exactly what I've preached this morning, if you can, if you can come and kneel, I recognize there are some of us that perhaps the back, the knees, the, the physicalness of us won't allow us to get on our knees. So I'm going to ask you to sit, you know, if you want to move forward and take as, as close as you can to sit. But I want all of us who can in this moment to call on God. If my people who are called by my name we desperately in this these united states come on come join me here come fall on our face before